One, two, three. Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today Cases of Mistaken Identity Mistaken identity in general is not a big deal. But in cases that depend on identification of a person, determining a person's liability, responsibility, and even freedom is very serious. What is better for a criminal investigation physical evidence? Or an eyewitness? Scott discusses some of these issues today. Introduction music from Upbeat by All Good Folks into Mr. Mischief Scott Your microphone is on The idea of mistaken identity has been around for a long time, of course. As a matter of fact, in the city of Charleston, South Carolina, back I guess when you could say Charleston, South Carolina was a town and not a city, it was illegal to testify to what you saw occur if you were seeing it looking through a glass window. And if you think back, glass windows in the early days They had a lot of imperfections, let's say. It was very difficult to see through them. They let light in. That was the main purpose of them, to allow light into into the house or into the the building. Glass itself had imperfections, and, and looking through the glass could distort your view. So you weren't allowed to give testimony to anything that you saw through that glass. Now, mistaken identity is a valid defense in criminal law and has helped several and once it's proven that a mistake has been made as far as someone's identity it's gotten some people out of some very serious time whether they actually did it or not the whole idea or concept to undermine the evidence of being guilty by insisting that any witnesses to the crime incorrectly thought or misidentified the defendant saying the person that you saw commit this crime or this offense was actually somebody else. And this this is useful because in the United States, when you're prosecuting a criminal case, you must prove or the state must prove the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant must convince the jury that there is reasonable doubt about whether the witness actually saw what they claim to have seen or that they're recalling it correctly. Uh, Scientific studies have shown that mistaken identity is, is actually very common, although a jury will put a lot of strong trust into eyewitness testimony in a court case, especially when the victim or the witness is very is very outspoken about what they've seen. Now that 
genetic fingerprinting or DNA evidence is much more common. More convictions are being made less on eyewitness testimony than on physical evidence. A recent study by a researcher by the name of Elizabeth Loftus states that over 75% of the cases of DNA exonerations have involved, the convictions have been because of mistaken identification. Abraham Lincoln once used the idea or the concept of mistaken identity in the defense of a gentleman by the name of William Duff Armstrong. Armstrong was a American soldier and the defendant in a murder prosecution in which he was defended by the future president at that time, Abraham Lincoln. This, of course, happened two years before he was elected president of the United States. Abraham Lincoln did a real Perry Mason, but since he did it before Perry Mason, I guess you could say Perry Mason possibly copied him. Anyway, in the court case, Lincoln referred to the Farmer's Almanac to prove that a witness could not have seen the defendant, William Armstrong, in the moonlight as was claimed because the position of the moon that night would not have provided sufficient illumination for the witness who was at one point and said they saw Armstrong during the commission of the crime. Armstrong was acquitted in that particular case. There's also the case of Ronald Cotton. Ronald Cotton in 1984 was charged with the sexual assault and rape of Jennifer Thompson. During the attack, Ms. Thompson testified that she studied the attacker's face in order to identify him if she survived the attack. And when presented with a photo lineup, she identified Cotton as her attacker. Twice she testified against him by saying she had identified him, a man by the name of Bobby Poole, who was an inmate later on actually started confessing to the crime and bragging about it while he was in prison and that it was he had done something that somebody else is taking the fall for. When shown a photograph in a lineup, she said she had never seen him before. Now this is after Cotton, Ronald Cotton had served ten and a half years of his sentence after he was convicted. Attorneys for Cotton arranged for DNA testing of him and Poole, and it ended up Poole's DNA matched the samples that were collected from Thomas's rape kit, proving that he was the one that had raped her. Thompson since has become a very serious critic of eyewitness testimony because of its proven unreliability. Yeah, I'll take physical evidence over visual identification just about any day of the week. She was filled with remorse, of course, after learning that she had contributed to Randolph Cotton, who was innocent of being convicted and sent to prison. Now, upon release for his wrongful conviction that had been proven by the DNA, Cotton was awarded over a million dollars in compensation from the state of North Carolina. And since that happened, Cotton and Thompson 
have actually reconciled and have become very close friends. They conduct speaking tours. I attended one of their lectures, or I attended one of their events, and it's very interesting. And they promoted a reform of procedures for eyewitness testimony, and they personally had impact on the way photographic lineups are done in the state of North Carolina and other identification methods that are used. After Cotton was released, Hole was prosecuted, he was charged with it, and he ended up pleading guilty to the sexual assault and raping of Thomas. Now, in legal terms, there is what's referred to as the SODI defense, S-O-D-D-I defense. Translation, some other dude done it. And it's often used when there is no question that a crime occurred, but the idea of who did it is in question. A murder or assault case where the defendant is not saying that it was self-defense. Basically, wasn't me, somebody else did it. Or as they say in law school, some other dude did it. But of course, this defense does carry a risk. And you, in the state of North Carolina, you can end up being criminally charged with false blame on another person for a crime, not to mention the civil aspect of it as well. Now, some states attempted to address this issue, and the state of South Carolina, in a case, Holmes versus South Carolina, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, they held that a South Carolina statute that had been passed that prohibited putting on a SADA defense, S-O-D-D-I, defense when the state's case was very strong, they stated the U.S. Supreme Court said this violated the Sixth Amendment of a right to be putting on a defense. Another term that's used is called the shaggy defense, and it's not Scooby-Doo shaggy. They're referring to actually the reggae musician and his 2000 single, quote, it wasn't me. It's a legal defense strategy in which the defendant categorically denies beyond any doubt, as far as he's concerned, that any accusation that they were the one that was witnessed or recorded, video recorded, committing an act, that they were the one that did it. The term was coined by a writer, Josh Levin, I believe, in 2008, to describe the defense tactics used by the singer R. Kelly while he was on trial for child pornography charges. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Again, the shaggy defense, which I actually think has a better, which the shaggy defense, the term shaggy defense, I think actually sounds a little bit better. Another shade of blue story or case of mistaken identity, or at least the way the identity was established is the topic of our next shade of blue story. In September of the late 1960s, a man entered the bank with small strips of tape on the side of his face. Kind of odd. He pointed a pistol at the female teller and the vice president of the bank as well, who were the only two people there in the bank at the time. He ordered them to take a pillowcase that he had brought with him and place the money from all the cash drawers inside the pillowcase. 
most everybody being out on their lunch break, just leaving the two of them, just leaving the two of them to continue operating the bank until everybody returned. After getting his pillowcase full of money, the man ran out of the bank and rode away in a vehicle that turned out to be stolen. They found out later. The vehicle was being operated by an accomplice to the bank robber. Now, a couple of months later, a gentleman by the name of Billy Joe Wade was arrested as a bank robbery suspect. He was locked up and held and later indicted for the robbery based on the information that they had developed at that time. They took the case to the grand jury. The grand jury found probable cause to send the case to court. Well, an attorney was then appointed to represent him, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation decided that they were going to get involved. Well, of course, it is a federal offense to rob a bank due to the federal insurance, banking laws, and everything. So the FBI guys got involved, and they put together a lineup. Now, you've seen a lineup on TV. Everybody's seen these where that group of individuals are brought usually into a room where the victim or the witness can identify them, but they can't be seen. And the victim or witnesses look at everybody in the lineup and then choose the person that closely resembles the suspect or the person that did whatever it was that happened. Now, this is what the two bank employees did. They were brought into a courtroom in the county building where six out of their prisoners all of them lined up with tape on their face, along with Billy Joe Wade, were presented to them. And both parties chose Billy Joe out of the in-person lineup. The men in the lineup were also asked to make a statement, the same statement that the robber made during the robbery. Put the money in the bag. And based on the visual and the voice, the bank employees, both of them identified Wade as the robber. Now, it was brought up in court this was not only a visual identification, but a verbal identification as well. This being done to help them make their decision to choose Billy Joe Wade as the offender. Now, Billy Joe Wade's attorney, who had been appointed to him after he had been indicted and before the lineup was put together, asked that the identification process be thrown out. The attorneys felt that the identifications were invalid on the grounds that the conduct of the lineup was without notice and with the absence of Mr. Wade's attorneys, his appointed counsel. In other words, they came and got him, they did the lineup, and nobody bothered to call the lawyer. They said this violated his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination especially the part of making the statement, put the money in the bag. That and his Sixth Amendment of right to counsel had been violated. This motion was put before the court and it was denied and Wade was convicted. Now, during the appeal process, which we know there's going to be one, the appeal went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Now, the determination was that nothing that happened in the lineup or that Wade was asked to do in any way violated his privilege against self-incrimination. They just asked him to make the statement that the robber made. They didn't ask him, did he do it? 
Well, the justices looked at it and they made the determination that the lineup wasn't really a violation of having his attorney there, didn't necessitate a reverse of the conviction. There were other court cases that were brought up in that particular hearing. Uh, Schumer versus the state of California that happened in the 1890s that backed up the court's perspective on that. They ruled that the case could be upheld if the prosecution could show by clear and convincing evidence that in the courtroom, identification was based on observations of him during the crime. What ended up happening with the appeal in the end, the Supreme Court vacated or throughout the conviction based on the procedures that were done to make the lineup when the lineup was conducted. Now in response to this, police departments and district attorney offices began to enact regulations and rules to ensure the presence of counsel uh, during lineups as being a necessary part of the lineup. This also brought to the attention of local district attorneys the issue of what is called a show up. A show-up is a situation where law enforcement will locate a suspect very soon after the incident has occurred. I mean, very, very soon. Less than 10 minutes is what I was always told. Very soon after the incident occurred. Or if you the incident occurred and you end up chasing a suspect and the chase lasts for quite some time, that's still valid for doing a show-up. And a show-up just means you brought the guy back and any witnesses at the scene can check to see if they recognize the person as the man or subject who done did it. There are several ways of doing this. My favorite was to place the witness in the patrol car or an unmarked car. Bring the witness or the victim by where the suspect was taken into custody and let the victim see them as, they, as you drove by and they make their decision at that point. Although usually you got, I'm not quite sure about that. It kind of looks like him, but that was just another aspect of the tools that you had in your investigation toolbox. Now there was another court case, Kirby versus Illinois, where the Supreme Court upheld that the absence of lawyers at the pre-indictment, now remember Wade was indicted before his lineup, uh, was not a violation of the Sixth Amendment. Most lineups occurred before indictments actually occurred or a grand jury was convened. With the complexity of all that, I guess that's why we pay lawyers a lot of money. There's a lot of stuff they must keep in mind and figure out to determine whether a person's rights have been violated. Whereas law enforcement has a very short period of time to make other decisions and put their case together. It could be years before a, a case actually goes to trial. Now the Supreme Court did order a new trial for Billy Joe Wade, but apparently that didn't occur or he was found not guilty in that particular trial uh, with reasonable doubt was established and he convinced the jury that he was not the suspect. But that's not the last we hear of Billy Joe Wade. He also shows back up again in 1967 on the charge for carrying concealed weapon. And in 1971, Billy Joe ended up being convicted of felony breaking and entering and burglary 
to the local J.C. Penney store there in Texas and was given two years time. After doing this time for the felony breaking and entering, a little while later, Carmen got another shot at him, almost literally. Billy Joe Wade got shot in the leg. According to him, he was standing on the street, not bothering anybody or doing anything to anybody or doing anything at all. And somebody came up and shot him in the leg. The assault was never solved. Of course, it occurred at four o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning. And there might be more to the story than what Billy Joe was talking about. Now, not to be undone with himself, thinking he got away with it once, Billy Joe Wade ended up doing another bank robbery. This time, he was convicted. This is kind of what you might say is having to pee on the electric fence in order to learn the lesson to leave it alone. He was convicted and given 20 years and placed in a federal prison in New Mexico where, after being there for a while, he unfortunately escaped but he was apprehended a little while later, and he ended up having a little more time added to his sentence. Billy Joe Wade apparently learned his lesson at that point because I wasn't able to find any more references to the gentleman after that, except for the fact that he passed away in 1984 in Texas. Now, there's a lot of aspects to an investigation. If you have witnesses of the crime, witnesses identify the individual that's not the end of the case. That's not the end of the investigation. This is in order to protect the individual's rights, not to mention the rights of the victim, and hopefully and eventually seeing justice being done. We're trying to get 12 of our peers or the suspects or defendants' peers to make a decision that beyond a reasonable doubt, this person committed that crime. And it can be complicated at times and a very long, drawn-out process. Victoria and I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and the Shade of Blue stories today and maybe picked up a little information that you might be able to use in the future. Now, please don't go robbing any banks and think you might be able to get away with it. You're not going to be able to. For the most part, you're going to get caught. But if you do have the opportunity to do something good for somebody, please step up and do it. If everybody did that, perhaps we'd have less bank robberies, less assaults, less murders, and the like. I don't know, but maybe it's worth a shot. Well, that's our Shade of Blue story for this week. I hope you found it of interest. If you would like to find out more and possibly check out some of my books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com or you can go to felonfile.com and both of these websites you can send us an email you can connect with us or email us directly at felonfile at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you Victoria you got your control board back we'll talk to you all next week be safe and be secure bye y'all You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites.
Be sure to check out the stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. Music from Upbeat is free for creators. Upbeat.io License code GFU2CPOTAUCJKMN5 2 1 N.